What people are seeing is untreated sewer water. South Florida gets soaked. My home got flooded with water, poop. It's just horrible. Is it the new normal? Who knows what's in the water, especially now with the pandemic. We are going to impose criminal penalties for violent or disorderly assemblies. Law and disorder. Stand your ground expands. A deep dive into the governor's plan. Until we have an effective vaccine, we can't let our guard down. We're seeing too many people die. A COVID surge predicted for the holidays. The doctor is in. Hi. Looking for Alexis Rodriguez. Yeah, Alex is in here. Hold Alex. on a minute, I'll call you right back. Hiding in plain sight, the mystery candidate who skewed an election. It's all this week, this week in South Florida. Good morning, glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putnam. I'm Glenna Milberg. The predictions of a COVID surge seem to be coming to fruition. Florida's positivity rate is back to almost 10% this weekend. Frontline healthcare professionals are under the gun again. Hospitals here seeing a sharp rise in new patients. Positivity rates are up, as Glenna said, and many of us are having to rethink family plans for Thanksgiving. I think we all need to see the doctor about this. And we've got the right one for you, Dr. Eileen Marty. She is an infectious disease specialist at the FIU Medical School, has been on the forefront of this fight against coronavirus from the get-go, and she is back with us again today. Good morning, Dr. Marty, great to see you. Good morning. Great to see you, Glenna, Michael. Thank you. Uh, doctor, uh, we're seeing these numbers go up. We just cited a few of them. Is this the kind of dreaded second surge that, uh, that you and others had warned us about? Well, we never got all the way down to the bottom, but absolutely, we're in a very serious upward climb in the in the in the nation and in our state. Uh, in the nation, we we have three and a half times more cases per day than the next highest country. We have the highest per capita death. Uh, excuse me, the highest per capita case rate in the in the world. Um, we're not doing well, and uh, we should be doing a lot better because we do have the expertise and the personnel to do better. Dr. Marty, let's let's bring it down local. We're watching the national headlines. To your point, locally, I'm watching the dashboard because usually the daily numbers are out at about 11:30 or so. But but this weekend. Uh, at almost 10% positivity rate in the state of Florida. Right now, I'm not sure if you can see the picture that we're putting up from that dashboard. Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach counties in deep, deep blue, high case territory. You can't really see Monroe County, but the northern and southern part of the Keys as well. Looks like all the metro areas of Florida, Duval, Hillsboro, uh, I believe that's Orange County in the middle. In the middle. Um, Governor Ron DeSantis in late September lifted restrictions what would be your advice now as we balance, of course, the economic fallout of what closures would do? Uh, what would be, with what you're seeing, your advice to the state of Florida? I think the state of Florida needs to take a hard look at the numbers and the consequences of not having the proper attitude towards combating this particular horrific virus. I think that the state of Florida needs to be acutely aware, not just of the percent of people who die. And by the way, you want to talk locally, Miami-Dade has the seventh highest 
numbers of deaths in all counties in the United States, and we're the third highest county for cases. So this is extremely serious in Florida, and we have to enact those public health measures and have the proper attitude towards this disease that will bring our numbers back down before we get into an overcrowded situation in our hospitals. And mind you, our hospital rates have been going up. Our admissions have been going up. We are absolutely going in the wrong direction right now. Uh, let me just sort of underscore what you said, uh, Dr. Marty. 3,700, a few more than 3,700 people in Miami-Dade County have died from coronavirus, from COVID-19, and more than 200,000 have been infected. I mean, these are really staggering numbers. And I guess the question I would ask is, with these new, the new increase, is this due to recklessness, people not observing social distancing, people refusing to wear masks? What, what accounts for these numbers? There's a number of things that accounts for, the, for that. Uh, there's very interesting studies demonstrating once again what we had suspected, which is problems with uh, family gatherings as well as problems with indoor dining as a huge contributor. But more than anything else, it boils down to uh, people not adhering to the basic public health requests and a false sense of security that a number of uh, a very significant portion of our population has uh, regarding testing, a false uh, understanding of how testing works and when uh, certain uh, test results mean what. Well, me, Those sorts me, of things. There's a lot of confusion. Yeah, I'm sorry. Let me interrupt you to say, what is this misconception that people have about testing, that if they come back negative, then they never have to be tested again? Or uh, what is the misconception you're referring to? There's a whole series of misconceptions. There are misconceptions about what a blood test means. There's misconceptions about timing of the testings. There's misconceptions about antigen tests versus uh, molecular testing, such as RT-PCR, their value, how long they're valuable for. The, the, it, it, there's so many misconceptions, it, it actually blows my mind. So when we look at a positivity rate per day, because that's how a lot of people are reporting these things, is that a true measure? Does that really give people an understanding of where COVID is in the community? Because a day that is a, a report, if something is reported per day, those people testing positive could have been infected three days, seven days, 10 days ago. How, how do we as the public get a handle on the true picture of where COVID is in the community? So probably the easiest ready look is to look at the numbers of people presenting with COVID type symptoms to, to uh, clinical care. That really gives you an idea of what's happening in terms of the viral burden in our community. Uh, th these numbers per day vary for all a host of reasons that are very indirect. Sometimes uh, there's been no testing because we were worried about a hurricane or there was a holiday. These sorts of things alter the, the percent positivity and give us false senses of security. The bottom line is uh, we have to be very vigilant with this virus. We're 
as you noted, we're near 10% again. Um, and we've been in the upper 9% for a couple of days now, which is, again, trending very, very poorly for our community. And um, it's just very important that we all get a grip as to what's going on, because it isn't just about people dying from this, which is horrific in and of itself. It's also what the impact is on our hospital systems of having these very challenging individuals mm -hmm. to treat, how that impacts on other health care, and moreover, the long haulers. We're seeing so many issues with people who didn't even have to be hospitalized that are suffering significant consequences from COVID-19 and even more so among people who were hospitalized. So this disease goes way beyond um, what, what's what been covered about it. Yeah, uh, Dr. Marty, um, let me not make this too personal, but our family was planning to have kids fly in from LA and New York. And I'm sure that there are all kinds of families who are listening and watching this conversation who also have big Thanksgiving plans, whether family was coming from out of state or just coming locally. And uh, what would be your advice to any kind of a family gathering for Thanksgiving? Family gatherings right now are risky business um, throughout the country. and it but like all these sorts of things, you have to essentially do a risk assessment for your particular family. How many people would be coming from different households? Where are they coming from? What's the rate of positivity where they're coming from? Has Have all the individuals been in some kind of uh, personal quarantine in order to allow for the Thanksgiving meal? Uh, together. And then if you do have more than one household at a Thanksgiving meal, um, consider doing appropriate testing before having the meal and also place people from different households in different tables and insist on the use of masks when uh, when you're not seated at your particular table uh, consuming the food and also uh, don't have people from different households going to uh, serve themselves at the same time. The rules of Thanksgiving 2020. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dr. Eileen Marty, always great to have you with us. Thanks for the thank, great information. Thank you so much, Dr. Marty. Love having you on on with us. Always a pleasure. Up next, the governor's anti-mob bill cracks down on violence at protests and ramps up Stand Your Ground. It is stirring up a hornet's nest and you will hear the debate. That's next. Florida's Stand Your Ground law is already controversial and now the governor wants to expand it to cover violence that happens at demonstrations. That's the main reason this so-called anti-mob legislation pitched by the governor is the focus of such debate. And to get a sense of what it would do and get beyond the politics of it, we have with us today Dan Gelber, who you know is Miami Beach's mayor, though in a former life was a federal prosecutor. Jude Facciadomo is president-elect of the Florida Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, two of the great uh, legal minds that we know here to sort of give us frame this out. Um, Dan, let me start with you. You know, essentially, if people don't want the consequences, they shouldn't commit the crime. So why is this such a topic of debate? Well, I, look, I think that this was offered by the governor as part of a sort of a pre-election uh, red meat 
smorgasbord uh, to boost the base turnout in the election. It's not, I, it's, it shouldn't be considered serious legislation, but of course I served 10 years in the legislature uh, and a lot of uh, stuff that is irresponsible has been passed. I think this is very dangerous legislation. We don't have a the problem. We have laws that protect property. We have laws that explain self-defense. We don't need to create a whole new kind of thing that I think would simply be a green light for the kind of vigilanteism that we saw when that 17-year-old kid in, in Kenosha brought an AR-15 to you know, protect a business and ended up killing two people and is now standing, uh, standing on trial for that. I don't think we need uh, to take care of this the way the governor is trying to simply, uh, you know, I think boost his credibility with the, with the base uh, of the Republican Party. June, can you follow up to that? Are there already laws that cover all of this stuff? Absolutely, and I, I couldn't agree with Dan anymore. I think it is very dangerous. Um, what you're looking at here is essentially putting a death penalty onto a property crime. The laws are written in a way that, yes, if you break the law, there's a punishment, but the punishment has to be appropriate. This is essentially deputizing the general public to very dangerously engage what would be a property crime. Um, you know, when the law was first passed, I'm sure you recall it was referred to as the shoot first, ask questions later law. Um, and this is expanding it to property crimes. So that's a very scary proposition. Yeah, well, uh, Jude, in fact, as I read the proposed law, a property crime, somebody, a demonstrator uh, pulling down a statue, let's say, uh, could be seen as criminal mischief and a, another civilian who was at that demonstration who had a gun would be allowed under the law to shoot the demonstrator and perhaps do it with immunity. Do I read that right? I, I believe you do, and, and the, the issue there can't be overstated. I, again, what you're talking about is criminal mischief. Criminal mischief can be a second-degree misdemeanor, which currently is, being, is punishable by 60 days in jail. What this legislation is doing is essentially saying, hey, general public, if you happen to have a firearm, you are welcome to engage this situation. You're welcome to discharge your firearm with deadly force and potentially kill someone for what would be a second-degree misdemeanor. So We don't punish property crimes with death in the civilized world. And I agree with Dan that this legislation really doesn't have much chance. All right, well, let's... Um, the, the governor actually explained himself, and he is the best person to explain himself. So I want to let you listen to what Governor DeSantis said about this particular proposal. Take a listen. We are going to impose criminal penalties for violent or disorderly assemblies, uh, and that'll be a third-degree felony. Uh, we will also uh, require uh, a felony if you uh, incapacitate any of the roadways. We see people take over interstates. Uh, that is absolutely hazardous. It's not fair to motorists who may get caught up in that. So, Dan, those, those laws kind of do exist, to your point earlier. However, we saw, especially after the George Floyd's death and the protests nationwide and, and right here in Miami-Dade County and Broward, there, there were people protesting. Um, you know, some of it was a little bit trouble. They were taking over the roadways. There are laws that cover that, but law enforcement decided to let it go because it was a peaceful, quote-unquote, protest. So what do you make of that? Well, let, let's be very clear. First of all, the most important point you raised was that there are laws uh, that if we choose to enforce them, 
we could. We could have. And in fact, we did in certain circumstances. I think you watched uh, those protests play out here. And, I, and I'll say this. I think the city of Miami mayor, Francis Suarez, and I think the police chief there showed uh, the kind of restraint you would hope, because I think if uh, it could have been a different scenario where, where there was all out gunplay or worse, uh, where people were dying and things like that. None of that happened here. Uh, you know, you're right. It was. I was on the roads, by the way, when that happened. And I remember thinking to myself, this is quite an inconvenience. But I think they showed the right kind of restraint. The governor's saying, listen, if, if you run somebody over, you know, it's okay. And literally, the law would allow uh, that kind of action to be sort of defensible. And I, and I don't know why we would want that. We have laws protecting property. We have self-defense laws. Uh, if you cause property damage in the name of a cause, you should be treated no better or worse than anyone who just does it for another reason. So I don't, I don't see the need for this at all. And I'll say this. This is absolutely political. The only thing I disagree with Judon is that it's pretty clear that, you know, you, he's pretty confident it doesn't have a chance. I served up there, and every time I said, gee, that'll never happen, it often happened. And, uh, you know, so I think you have to realize that if the governor wants to do this. He can power it through the legislature. But I'll say this to the governor. You know, he seems pretty intent on fully and completely addressing a problem that literally doesn't exist in Florida. But he, as your last uh, speaker, Dr. Marty, pointed out, he will not implement a mask mandate as the state approaches nearly 18,000 deaths. There's got to be more important pressing things for the governor and the legislature to address other than a problem that literally doesn't exist in the state of Florida right now. You know, I, I would point out, and forgive me, you two are very fine lawyers, but I just want to remind everybody that the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees, quote, the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition their government for redress of grievances. Now, the governor, in you know his defense, is talking about disorderly assemblies. But who is to say what exactly is a disorderly assembly? I would point out that back in the 19, late 1950s, early 60s, all the black people who went to lunch counters and asked to be served, including in Miami, uh, that would have been called a disorderly assembly. So I, I speak to that. I, I couldn't agree more that this is an end run around First Amendment rights. Um, the governor can't trim any fat off the First Amendment. So essentially what he's saying is you can exercise that right, but at your own risk. Jude, can let me ask you a question real quickly, because sure. we have about 30 seconds. You've, you've done these kind of cases. To use a stand your ground defense is a hill to climb. It's not a blanket. So... So there still is that component where this defense may not be usable unless you as an attorney get the evidence to rise to that level, right? Well, you know what? It's not as high a hill as you may think it is. In 2017, the statute was amended to shift the burden to the state. So if I present this through a motion and I say, my client's immune, it then becomes the state's obligation to disprove that. Now, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, so anything that makes it harder for the state, I'm in favor of. But <laughs> the reality of this is that that is a very difficult thing to put on the state of Florida, which is to prove a negative. So it's not quite as difficult as you might think, Lana. 
All right. Well, I want to thank you, Jude Fachadomo. Thank you very much. Dan Gelber, old friend, thanks for being with us this morning. We appreciate it. Great to see you both. Thanks. Thank you. All right. Up next, we're going to talk to someone on the ground trying to clean up the mess from all that water we got from Ada. Now, days after the rain finally stopped, so many in South Florida are still dealing with a flood of troubles in neighborhoods. Government managers are dealing with an overwhelmed water control system and sewage treatment plants that just couldn't handle all the waste. It has caused a stinking nightmare for tens of thousands of people in South Florida. Paul Thompson is one of them. He is the assistant utilities director for the city of Pembroke Pines. Paul, welcome. Glad you were with us. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for morning. having me. Sure. Could you give us an update on the situation in Pembroke Pines? How are you doing today with all the water? Well, Pembroke Pines is doing much better today. Uh, we have been assiduously working. We've had a lot of our crews out on the ground, out in the field. Uh, we had most of our issues to the western portion of our city, and uh, that really uh, stressed those communities that are in that area. But as of right now, we are seeing no active areas of flooding. Uh, we've been uh, drawing down water. We've been doing a lot of work in the area, so we have no active flooding for the most part. Some areas may have small patches, small areas where the lakes are still at high level. But now we are focusing on clearing the main lines and just lowering the levels in our lift stations. So, Mr. Thompson, you are doing what so many of your counterparts and other places are doing. And I think we're going to ask you sort of to speak broadly on their behalf because we, we watch the headlines and I think people really do understand we had a lot of water all at once and the ground just couldn't absorb it all at once because we are a low-lying region. But, you know, this program, we go beyond that. And why can't the systems keep up? How, are they antiquated? Is it fixable? What's it going to take for South Florida to stay relatively dry? Well, well, let's be fair in the first instance uh, and, and, and understand that the, the level of precipitation that we received over the two-day period, November 7th through the 9th, was unusual. We're looking at what acquaints, uh, amounts to 50 to 100-year flood levels of rainfall. Uh, that is not a typical uh, amount of rainfall in our city. For the most part, most of our cities, uh, especially in the newer sections, can handle a fair amount of rainfall, four inches of rainfall or so. When you get to eight inches of rainfall, 12 inches of rainfall, uh, in some cases, 15, 18 inches like we got. We had one area in Pembroke Pines that received 21 inches of wow. measured rainfall. Wow. So that is not normal. So it's not that the system is antiquated. And of course, there's always room for improvement. There's always the ability to, to, to make things better. But when you're dealing with utility infrastructure, it's never a quick or easy type of situation where you go, you snap your finger and you make it happen. Our leaders have to be, be a part of it, uh, our engineering team, and everyone has to do it. And then we have to make sure that over the course of years, that we implement and upgrade as necessary. Now, I was in touch with pretty much all of the major cities around us, and like you said, they all had the same issues. Now, the older section of our city to the east 
where the drainage is not as good, fortunately received less rainfall. So the effect may have been similar with eight inches of water there, as we saw out west with 15 inches of water. So it, it, it's, there are areas that need some rebuilding. And we in Pembroke Pines, we're doing an excellent job of that because our, our, um, our area to the east is being is being uh, uh, retrofitted and upgraded. We've upgraded the water lines and we're upgrading the sewer lines in those areas. So we are on a path to improve our situation. So I can only speak for my city in that regard. We, we, we Paul, we understand. Uh, sort of the master controller of this complex water control system in South Florida is of course the South Florida Water Management District. I like to say the most powerful and underreported <clears throat> government agency in South Florida. Huge job they've got. How would you rate the job they did to sort of lower water in the canals to do everything they could prior to the arrival of the water from Ada? Well, well, there's two parts to that also because we all planned for a storm. The, the, the reality is none of us knew what type of a storm or what level of storm we were about to get. So I am pretty sure that the South Florida Water Management District, I'm sure that the Broward Drainage District, the Broward County Drainage District, they all prepared because we prepared in our city and we were still inundated. So I'm pretty sure they all, we all prepared, but we did not expect the level of rainfall over the time period that we received. So I can't say that they did not prepare well or they did not prepare sufficiently. What I can say is that it's a great learning experience. So regardless of the type of, of, of system that's coming on shore and affecting our areas, I am reasonably sure that going forward, we will all prepare to a higher level. We'll make sure that we, we go that extra mile. So if they drew down five feet in the canals and, and, and so on, I'm sure the next time they're going to start earlier and they're going to try to draw down 10 feet if that's what it requires. I'm going to ask just one question that you might be or might not be comfortable answering, but your city, Pembroke Pines, is built right up to the edge of the Everglades, as are others. Should it be? Well, <laughs> unfortunately, we can't change that at that at this point. You know, we're already there. So what we have to do is manage what we have. And, you know, just the fact that our the furthest reach of our city to the west is a community by the name of Holly Lake. And I'll be honest with you that Holly Lake did not have, you know, the type of, of, of issues that some of the other areas that are close to Holly Lake had. But Holly Lake literally sits in the Everglades. So I think, you know, with, with proper management will have to work with what we have. We already have the communities right up to the Everglades. I don't think we need to be building additional communities into the Everglades yeah. to answer your question better. A gracious answer and yeah. thank you for being a good sport about that. <laughs> Paul Thompson, thanks so much. Appreciate you being with thank, us today. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. I appreciate you and, and thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, the round table is next. Late this week, after recounts by hand and machine, Republican Ileana Garcia became the new state senator from State Senate District 37, Southwest Miami-Dade, along the coast of downtown Miami, lower part of Miami Beach. Garcia beat incumbent Democrat Jose Javier Rodriguez by just 34 votes. But there was a fly in the ointment, as it were, 
third candidate in the race, an independent with the same last name as the incumbent, Rodriguez. He got more than 6,300 votes without campaigning or fundraising or putting out a platform. In fact, his campaign never even answered the phone. Looking into how that happened, we found evidence suggesting that candidate was a plant, a shill, financed by dark money, and more than that, one of several in state Senate races that disrupted the Democratic candidate's chances. Alexis Rodriguez isn't here because he doesn't live here. Why does people always keep on coming over here asking for a guy that doesn't live here? Well, because Alexis Rodriguez wrote this false home address under oath when he qualified to run for state Senate. Hi, looking for Alexis Rodriguez. Alex isn't here. Hold Alex. on a minute. I'll call you right back. Okay? Rodriguez lied again to us hours after this visit. We learned that was Alex Rodriguez. Do you know he ran for Senate? Yeah, I know. What we don't know is why Rodriguez had a sudden urge to run for Senate District 37 and how, with little or no effort, ended up the apparent spoiler. Incumbent Democrat Jose Javier Rodriguez, notice the same last name, and Republican challenger Ileana Garcia. When we started looking into campaign documents, we found these connections and similarities to other third-party candidates in other races around the state. I'm going to tell you all about those, but first, meet one of them. You're not Celso? It oh, took a while okay. for Celso Alfonso to come clean. He said he dreamed of public service as a child, so at 81, suddenly decided to run for Senate District 39, which Republican Ana Maria Rodriguez won over Democrat Javier Fernandez. Who paid for your flyers? I don't have any flyers. Alfonso does have flyers from the same Central Florida mailhouse as, yes, Alexis Rodriguez, paid for by a political action committee called Our Florida. That packs one and only expenditure. Who paid for them? Uh, well, we did. We, we, we have uh, like $2,000 that we put it on it. And who, so you paid for your own flyers? Right. But that's not on your campaign expense account? No. It's not now. And I saw, uh, now it's over. What else do campaign reports for both Alfonso and Rodriguez show? Both filed as no party affiliation, but records show they were both registered Republicans. They qualified on the same day last June, listing identically patterned email addresses. Neither campaigned nor fundraised. Both had flyers with typically Democratic issues. Our Florida PAC that funded them has one contributor listed as proclivity with an address that is this UPS store in Atlanta. And that is where the money trail went dark for us. Important to note that untraceable campaign contributions are under Florida campaign laws, doable and legal. We want to get some input on that and some other big stories of this week. And boy, there were several from our roundtable. Rafael Yanez is a political analyst and attorney in Miami, usually comes at things from the sort of center right, if I'm not mischaracterizing that. Uh, Raphael, good to see you. He is in Gainesville. Bernadette Norris Weeks is an attorney in Fort Lauderdale, founder of the Women of Color Empowerment Institute. She is a Democrat. To both of you, welcome. Great to see you. Hello, good everybody. Morning. Happy to be here. Thank you. Likewise, so thank you. You are both veterans of elections uh, over several cycles, and I wanted to, Raphael, can we start with you? You know, this kind of thing is probably not new. This time it was just kind of something hiding in plain sight that we found and mm -hmm. continue to look into. 
I mean, why would 6,300 plus people vote for someone in the first place that they know nothing about because they're sort of invisible candidates? Well, they they voted for the last name Rodriguez, and it's fair to assume that they meant Jose Javier Rodriguez. Your reporting, Glenna, was superb, as per usual with you and Michael. Uh, the hunch that your executive producer had to follow the trail, and, and not surprisingly, you reached a dead end. And I think where your reporting ends, a criminal investigation should begin at the FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement in Tallahassee, or better yet, because it's multi-jurisdictional outside of Florida with that UPS mailbox in Atlanta, and also probably crimes committed with the banking system, our friends at the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office should be involved immediately to preserve evidence and preserve records. I did my own digging, Glenna, to look at the campaign documents. You always tell me, go check your sources, right? Uh, well, one of the people involved, the straw woman, Haley DeFilippis, for our Florida, and another one, Sierra Olive, for the truth, PACs, that were involved in, uh, in the story in the background, they didn't list the account numbers. They listed SunTrust or whomever filled out these forms for them. Uh, they seem to be young Republican-affiliated women with no prior campaign experience. And I'm curious why they don't list a SunTrust bank account number. So if our friends in the, in the feds and at FDLE could look into that, I'd appreciate it. You bring up some really good points, and, and it's things that we're actually, we have trails we're following as well. Bernadette, please do weigh in. Um, you are and were an elections attorney, in fact. Uh, I'd like you to weigh in on what you saw. Yes, I think this is something that whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you want to see elections run well and properly and without fraud. And there could be, I think, and there should be um, an amendment to the Florida's contest statute that would address something like this, because clearly these people um, did not list their own address. Um, they were they they did nothing you know to campaign and certainly that's somebody's right but to um, actually lodge um, an address that's not your own um, I think that in and of itself um, ought to raise certain concerns and I think that it, it puts a cloud over the entire elections process because um, you have someone who you know lost with basically 31 votes or, or maybe a little bit not much more um, and here's here's a, a veteran person who was doing a really great job and you have these dark money donors that you can't trace the um, uh, the money and the falsified address stating no party affiliation when in fact they had already registered as Republicans. There's really something wrong with that and the system needs to be fixed. Right. Glenna, I'd like I'd like to yeah. throw, if I may, I, I want I want to say another curiosity from the, the independent work that I did was that uh, Luis O. Rodriguez, uh, who is the owner of Aspire, or, or is listed as the owner and principal agent uh, of the Aspire Impression uh, Corporation out in Claremont, Florida, the original address listed for that uh, incorporation in SunBiz was at uh, the affordable housing project in Cutler Bay, but then he somehow purchased a home over a quarter million dollars up in Claremont. Uh, so that, that seems to be quite a jump. Uh, I'm not knocking people who live in affordable housing. It's just curiosity. Uh, where Where is he getting the money? And his mm -hmm. firm received almost half a million dollars from these two shady packs that were funded by proclivity. No, no way to track proclivity. So I agree with Bernadette. Everyone, everyone should be yeah. asking and demanding that our legislators in Tallahassee 
conduct campaign finance reform. Now, that's against their self-interest for many of them <laughs> and the dark yeah. arts, but that's where we need to go. Yeah, well, as uh, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein taught us many, many years ago, follow the money, and I hope FDLE does in this case. Well, let's move on, if we can, to a few other hot topics. And you might have heard, I suspect you did, heard the discussion of the governor's proposed anti-mob bill, which would crack down on violent protests. And nobody's in favor of violent protest or looting. But uh, Rafael, uh, does this bill go way too far? Absolutely, Michael. Unfortunately, uh, the governor is either getting bad advice or needs to get better advice from his team. Um, he is a very smart man. He is a very sophisticated man. He happens to also be an attorney. And he attended two of the uh, most prestigious educational institutions in this country. This bill, uh, sometimes politicians put out bills trying to get attention, knowing that they won't make it to, to the governor's desk. In this case, it's the governor's office proposing something, and I hope sober minds in the both branches of Tallahassee and the State House and Senate uh, think about this critically and think about long-term implications. We don't want to make death uh, the penalty for property crimes. I think that goes against uh, our Constitution, but also basic human decency. That being said, you know, we do need to shore up training and enforcement with our police officers who serve honorably and were facing mobs. It's not, it's not fair to pretend that they were not facing mobs. People pro uh, protesting for Black Lives Matter uh, were not the people in the mob. You know, it's let me, um, let, I just want to, Bernadette, there was something that we did not discuss earlier that I'd like you to weigh in on. And, and there is, you know, I, I hear Raphael kind of going there. In this stand your ground issue, both the current and the proposed, there, there really is something that we have to look at, a racial component, especially with mm -hmm. problems of, of implicit bias. Do, do you see that in this? Oh, absolutely. Let me tell you, this governor is a smart man, and I, I absolutely agree with my colleague. Um, what's happening here, you had a great interview, and I just want to go back a second with um, a Republican strategist last week. It was a really great interview, and they pretty much highlighted, they gave you their playbook for how they conducted in, in one Florida, basically, um, and how they focused on different Latin groups and focused on messaging for those groups. Well, one um, message was the um, defund the police message, which was a message that I think took out some very capable and competent um, elected officials, both at the federal level and state level, because it was so hard to um, combat that messaging. And so this um, um, enhanced um, stand your ground um, uh, law that the governor is touting right now is just more red meat. Um, you know, it's not even a dog whistle. It's like a dog horn um, to re the Republican parties, to people who um, were who bought into that. Um, and, you know, many of us think ridiculous um, socialism, communism kind of um, idea that, um, and for people who are uh, from Cuba and Nicaragua and Colombia and they're used to seeing uh, maybe violence in the street and, and uh, understand what socialism, um, you know, not the type that we talk about here in the United States, really, really means. Yeah. Um, that, that was a that was a that was a threat, and so that, let me just say this: the governor, this, there was a playbook in 2018 where. Wait, Bar Brandon, I hate to interrupt you, but we we're up against a break. So if you sit tight, we can pick up when we come right back. Can we do this? Very right, well. Stay tuned. Thanks. All right.
and if we can, at Trump versus Biden, I think that we, the whole nation, is on tenterhooks waiting to see if and when President uh, Trump should ever concede. I keep getting the emails from him from his campaign, which uh, alleges that the election has been stolen and that there will be no concession. Raphael, what do you expect? Michael, Glenna, I think we need to put this in terms that the president understands terminology he uses, uh, because he only tweeted out an hour ago that he will never concede and that everything's rigged, which are both lies, and he needs to concede. Mr. President, the ratings are back. They're very negative against you. Your viewers are dying because you haven't been doing a good show. So it's time to make way for the next program that's coming on after you. So Bernadette, in the Constitution, there is no, no law requiring a concession at all. And so why not, just in the interest of every I being dotted and every T being crossed, why not let the president get through the process? The, the country is kind of watching and assumes that it knows where this is going to go. What's, what's wrong with just letting it say, hey, this, this, it is what it is. In the president's words, it is what it is. Well, nothing would be wrong if he were not holding up a transition process and refusing to give information um, to the president-elect that's needed for national security reasons and protects us all, especially when you have a president who can care less about um, briefings and wanting to know anything about what's going on around him. And so, it, you know, if it means that we um, just have to sit still and wait until January uh, 20th, oh, my God, you know, um, I guess we'll just have to do that. But meanwhile, the president is fundraising on this silly campaign of not um, acknowledging that he lost the election. And he's also using it uh, for the Georgia Senate races um, to right. be able to right. organize these folks. Bernadette, let me ask you, and I want Raphael to weigh in, too. Uh, a few days ago, Governor Ron DeSantis on Fox News said that he was going to encourage legislatures in Michigan and Pennsylvania to send electors for the Electoral College who would vote against the results of the people in their state and who would vote for Donald Trump. I mean, oh my goodness, this is yeah. just an extraordinary thing for a governor to say, isn't it? Oh my goodness is right. It's un-American. Um, everybody should be appalled. And if that's the kind of politics, let me tell you, in Florida, they've mastered dirty politics from, you know, removing two supervisors of elections that um, counted the votes and, you know, as they should have been doing. Um, it, it is dirty politics here. And this is a preview of what we can look for in 2020. Rafael, what do you think? Michael, Glenna, it's very simple. Ron DeSantis is on the short list of Republicans who are interested in running for president. He has a minor re-election to get through in 2022. If he's successful, he's set up for 2024 if Trump doesn't run. He wants to stay in Trump and the party of Trump's good graces. So he's going to say whatever he thinks he needs to say to make it look like he was a loyal soldier. I think it's irresponsible. I think it goes against the American democracy. And it's a tragedy to see Republican elected officials in our home state and across the country encouraging stupidity. He tweeted out a happy Diwali yesterday, and I replied back to him, Diwali is about overcoming ignorance with knowledge, amongst other things. It's time that we celebrate that here at home and in the governor's mansion. That's a good point on which to end. Um, I, Burnett, sorry, we are out of time. Thank you both for taking the time to be with us today. We appreciate your expertise. Great to have you both, and stay tuned, because we'll be right back.
as always, we thank you for spending part of your Sunday with us. A lot going on, so remember we're online 24-7 at local10.com. And remember, as always, stay informed, get involved. Have a great Sunday, and go Dolphins. <laughs>